Hey, everyone, and welcome to another roundtable discussion of We Need to Talk. Today, we are discussing white privilege, a topic that many run away from or just simply deny. Joining me in the discussion are filmmaker and organizer, Dakota Lupo. Hello. Songwriter and YouTuber, Rod Kim. Hey, what's up? Pastor at Hollywood United Methodist Church and LGBTQ Advocacy Coordinator for the Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church, Reverend Denise Barnes. Hi. And organizer, activist, and environmental justice advocate, Chelsea Gentry-Tipton. Hi. Thank you guys so much for joining me. I'm really excited to talk to all of you. So, uh, Dakota, I'm just going to start with you and ask the very, very basic question. What is white privilege? Well, I'll be honest, ruminating it for this conversation allowed me to get the right answer. And I think that's part of my answer, that even though uh, I do work that revolves around defining, discussing this, it still took me a second thinking about being on this podcast and how I would define it. But the way that comes to me is that privilege is the inverse of oppression. And and I think that for me is the most important part, because I think the word privilege itself comes with this, like, like a privilege of riches, as if you're getting something. And I think that takes away from the meaning. So for me, privilege is like baseline. And the, the, uh, the, and the inverse of that would be those who are oppressed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Denise, what about you? What, how would you define white privilege? Um, I would define it as, as having advantages over other people, whether you know it or not. And that's the key to it, I think, is the not being able to realize that you have those advantages. Um, and it's just that the walk through life is so much easier when you ha- when you carry those privileges that other people don't have. Mm-hmm. Chelsea, um, I would say white privilege. I agree. It's like the baseline. Um, I also strongly feel like it's just one of the many privileges that people enjoy, but it's definitely the one that we have literal systems built around. Um, and so most people know they benefit from it, and that's mm-hmm. fine. But it's why we're having this conversation and why it's important to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Rod, finally, how would you define white privilege? Um, at least in my experience, I would feel like it's it's specifically for white privilege is like opportunity or the access to opportunities because of like your skin color or, or something, you know, um, that aren't available as widely you know, to, to other people of different situations. Denise, in the work that you do in the church, how have you seen white privilege kind of show up within the things that you've done and within the church environment? You know, we've had conversations about this often. And, you know, when you think of a, a faith community, you would hope that something like white privilege wouldn't show itself in those communities. But how have you seen it actually take shape? I think I've seen it in a variety of ways. For example, um, I'm teaching a a vital conversations class on racism right now. And one of the things people had to do was draw a picture of their face according to certain rules of, you know, have you ever been stopped from having a job because of the color of your skin? One of the questions I think was you had to draw a nose if 10% or more of your faith community was different race to you. And everyone in that group drew that. And I had to tell them no. That's not it. And they were like, yeah, but I know so-and-so and and I know so-and-so. And And I'm like, yeah, and that's all the people of color that go to our church and that doesn't make up 10% of it. And and so for me, it's it's the lack of that voice that people think is there because they see people of color, but isn't there in terms of leadership or representation or people that are appointed to churches. We don't have a black pastor at our church. Mm -hmm. We don't have a community at our church. Mm -hmm. 
um, it's that I got appointed there because actually probably because of my sexuality rather than the color of my skin. But had I been a person of color who was queer, it's unlikely that I would have been appointed there also. That's, I actually hadn't thought about that until you just said it right now in all the conversations that we had that didn't even cross my mind. Um, so we know that recently there's a lot of nationwide protests against inequality. And I do think that it is encouraging a lot of more conversations, obviously about racism, but also about white privilege. So Chelsea, have you seen kind of conversations shift to talk more about racism and white privilege, it just kind of in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement having another uprising this year? Um, you know, honestly, I'm in Nebraska now. And mm, so, okay. Like, <laughs> you know, much different lens than a lot of people are, um, or even I'm used to viewing it from. Um, as somebody who's, you know, my first protest was when I was 12, we protested affirmative action um, at yeah, UC Berkeley and Jesse Jackson spoke and my mom signed off on a, you know, permission slip to leave school so I could go protest. Mm-hmm. Um, watching what's happening out here and watching how people are using their privilege um, and how it's backfiring, really, is what I've been saying. Um, we had the first protest that happened out here um, actually resulted in the death of a young Black man being killed by a known racist business owner who was literally outside waving guns and threatening to shoot people. And when he jumped on him to stop him from shooting someone, he shot him and killed him. Mm. Um, and the county prosecutor let him go. Um, and the man had so much white privilege that he was able to hop on a flight and leave the country and we don't know where he is now. Um, but meanwhile, there's you know a 24 year old child here who is dead because he tried to stop um, this man who was a known racist. Um, known homophobe he's known for his hate in the community um and they chose not to do anything and so you know watching the protests out here has been extremely frustrating for me and i've kind of been screaming from the top of my lungs about it because i see people who are using their privilege in amazing ways um i've had so many like white allies send me money and send me funds and even just like go puff me some tequila when i'm stressed (laughs) out you know um and i don't they really understand that like donating directly to the black people and people of color in your life and the marginalized people in your life is really a huge thing. Yeah. Um, because we don't see those big donation monies in our, you know, our everyday life. But like, I definitely was able to have a shot of tequila on my birthday while I was in quarantine and appreciated that, you know? I um, what I have seen out here in these protests is I've seen a lot of supposed allies agitating the police. Um, and what I literally saw was a white woman who was, you know, bucking up right up on the police line, telling them, you know, shoot me, shoot me for a solid half hour. Uh-huh. And so they started shooting flashbangs into the crowd. And what they're not understanding is that they're provoking the situation that the police are literally there to escalate. That's all they're going to do. That's what they're supposed to do. It's their job. And so for you to sit there and provoke this escalation, like if you don't have a tactical plan to protect these people that you're fighting for, you're not helping us at all. Um, We're just ending up with more dead black people, more dead brown people. It's not helping us at all. And anybody can respond to this, but just in you giving those examples that you were on the front lines for, why even when you say those examples, do you think people still do not see that white privilege is a thing? Anybody can answer this question. 
Yeah, Chelsea brought up economic privilege, and I think that you know she spoke about uh, donating monies. And there's economic privilege is something people could see. And for me, a lot of privilege exists in what you can't see. And the example I I like to go is is the privilege to not be dehumanized. And it's uh, it's nighttime, and as a white male, I'm walking down the street past an ATM machine. I won't be profiled, or I most likely won't be profiled, other than being male, possibly, uh, because of my skin color. Whereas somebody who is brown or black may get have a higher chance of getting um, even just a, a, a side eye from somebody, or somebody clutching their purse, or some some stereotypical um, microaggression that there is a sense of dehumanization. Why do why can't I walk down my own street without somebody looking at me like there's danger? And I think right. that for a lot of white people, they can't see it because mm-hmm. it's it's the thing that's not happening. It's the feeling that's not happening. You know, how do you know the color purple exists if you've never seen the color purple? Right. How do you know that being dehumanized for walking down your block exists if there's a very small chance as a white person you'll get that? So I think that's the big issue is that yeah. people defend the, the tangible privilege, but they don't recognize how much... Uh, how much social damage they live without. I grew up in Indiana. I feel like, um, I don't know if anybody else has seen, there's this uh, clip that's kind of going viral from Golden Girls where Blanche is putting up like the Confederate flag and she, I think she argues with Don Cheadle of all people. Like, about it. anyway, it's a whole thing. <laughs> um, but it kind of reminded me of something like uh, growing up in the Midwest, and this is not just talk smack on anybody I grew up with, but uh, there's so much culture that's just entangled with the privilege. So it's like your fondest memories of like, having Thanksgiving dinner on the farm and everything. This is including myself, you know, because like me and my brother were like the only Asian kids in like the whole, you know, area and stuff. Um, but like we, you know, like that is all because of all these other things that like historically for hundreds of years have like led up to, you know, our wonderful memories. And so I think it's like some, for some people, I mean, I, I'm speaking for some of like my friends back in the Midwest, they're not necessarily trying to be racist, but I think they're trying to protect like the things that they held dear right. and the history of those things like are so deeply rooted in like really kind of like racist practices and, and everything. I don't know like how better to explain it, but it's just, it's just so it's too connected and it's kind of tough to detangle from each mm-hmm. other. We just had a restaurant shut down out here because they had a Robert E. Lee um, menu option, which is a, it was a bomb menu option, but they absolutely refused to take the name off. They wouldn't change it to anything else. Their son was sending out racist tweets nonstop. So the restaurant was shut down. Um, and they blamed people protesting their racism. They blamed the fact that they, that people were upset that their son was threatening to go and kill people at Black Lives Matter events. Uh. Um, and our city mayor had a whole investigation into whether or not the protesters were coercing the business owners and put them out of business. I mean, it's like he said, it's so ingrained in the culture in the Midwest. People really don't understand that literally every step you take you're living in some level of privilege or not here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was, I, I was going to say is that you hit on something, Rod, that they feel like something's kind of being taken away from them almost. I think you said something. And I think I, it makes me think of like the statues, for example, that are being removed currently. There's something within, I guess, white culture that they feel like their history is being erased when that's taken, being taken away. And that to me is a privilege in itself, that your history is what is being taught and being glorified. And I don't think that that's something that they realize, you know, for Black people, our history is taught one month out of the year, and then that's it, even though Black history is a part of American history. So that in itself also, again, is, is a privilege because your culture and everything about your race is the societal norm. And I don't think people realize that at all. This so on that point, called, yeah. oh, there's a movie there called was, Jojo Rabbit. 
Um, yes, and yes. It, it, short version, go see it if you haven't. And it's kind of, I feel like a lot of people are like the little kid. You, know, you don't, they literally don't know any better because they just always had that baseline. Yeah. And then you see that moment that they're like, I think these are bad people. And then it's just this like tearing apart of all that entanglement, you know, like my entire life, you know, all the good memories and stuff came from the Nazis, you know, and uh, we're far enough away from it. We're like, oh, of course they knew that was bad. But this is like a little kid that was like, he, he was just going to summer camp, you know, his, yeah. his mind. Right. So, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, that's all I have to say about that. It's the same point. I mean, the idea of the, the white historical narrative is also falsely these conquerors, these, I'm going to put it in quotes, air quotes, these winners, these victors, these these saviors, right? And so the history is a narrative of, of, of victory. And I think the, the Black history we do teach is also a history of oppression. So the narrative of being white is you get to look backwards and see all of these. It's like, it's like being a Patriots fan. You look back and you see a bunch of wins. You'll feel a lot more enthusiastic than a Detroit Lions fan who'll look back and see a bunch of losses. You're going to feel differently walking into the next season. It's an awful, it's not good, a good analogy, but the idea <laughs> of even the history itself, you know, um, people talk about including different types of black history and what they'll first bring up are uh, Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and, mm -hmm. and people that are Frederick Douglass and people that are incredible figures of black history, but also they were subject to incredible oppression and racism as opposed to uh, black poets and authors and, and chefs and, and, and right. different people that are just uh, incredible people that offer a history that has nothing to do with the racism that built. Growing up in England, of course, I didn't learn American history, but what I learned was the British white history, right? And I was taught, of course, to be very proud of a country that has only not invaded 27 countries in the whole world, right? And I, I grew up proud of that because that's what I was taught. And when I got to seminary and started learning about the truth, it was a real shock to me, a real shock to me. And, and I felt personally attacked because that, that was my people and my culture. And it's taken me a lot to unpack that into, you know, my responsibility is not that my people did that. My responsibility is to right the wrongs that those people did in today's world. Um, and to that end, I'm reading a brilliant book called um, A Different Mirror, which is the history of America through very, very different lenses. Mm. Um, I also bought an equivalent book about English history so that I can learn what the truth is and what people's stories are, because all of this comes down to people's stories that have been erased and that we need to hear and start learning. I think the hardest thing for me is that I think we know in order to move forward, we have to address the past. But so many people are just afraid to address the past and acknowledge that what this country was built upon. So how do we get people to even just start there? Great question. <laughs> I, I think there's a, there's a smaller, like a micro scale of that happening right now. I don't know if anybody's a, a fan of the Bon Appetit channel. Uh, Pre-pandemic, they were massive. It, it was basically like the office, but like a test kitchen. Um, short version of the story, halfway through the pandemic, one of the people of color that's in the cast there kind of came forward and said, like, only the white cast members get paid to be on camera. And like the huh. Hispanic and the black people, not even characters, they're actual people working in the test kitchen. They don't get compensated for being on camera. Um, and so now the whole channel is kind of caving in. People are quitting and stuff and, and everything. But the uh, white cast members are now all kind of very, at various stages coming to terms that their entire careers and success have been built upon becoming celebrities on the backs of all these people of color in this test kitchen on YouTube and a massively successful channel. And I think it, that in that case, it took uh, this particular one or two people like 
kind of puncturing like the threshold, you know, and like speaking out, like, listen, I don't get paid to be on this channel. And then, you know, everybody else was kind of like me, me neither, you know, and just kind of like, you know, it was a tipping point. So I don't, I don't know what that scales to like nationwide or worldwide. Right, you know? right, but, right. Yeah. To, to your question, Melinda, I think that it's um, kind of what Rob was talking about before. There is a sense of people being ingrained and, and obviously being born in a privileged and oftentimes whether explicitly or implicitly racist town, city, country, you are a product of your environment. But I think the challenge then becomes in adulthood, where, where do you draw the line between, or not where do you draw the line, but there's a sense of empathy for someone's experience and how they were misinformed and taught to believe things that are structurally incorrect and or damaging. And at the same time, where's the line where they, they as an adult, have to have the responsibility or the uh, ability to have the conversation. And that's you know, the first question you asked, what is privilege? The, I think one of the problems of, of our current culture is that we can't get past that question, or even people will say, well, do you think privilege exists? Which is a, like, that's not worth, I mean, that's worth, it's a worthy dialogue in, in, a, in a general sense, but we get stuck at that part of the conversation. Yeah. It has to be privilege exists, let's discuss how, let's discuss why, let's discuss we, what we can do. And I think until as a, as a nation, the word privilege doesn't need a shield of defense to, to make sure, no, 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 it exists, whether you feel like you have it or not, if you uh, not even identify as white, if you can be seen as white by other people, you assume a certain type of privilege. Mm -hmm. If not, then you don't. And I think right. that as a baseline needs to be established before we actually can get into it because people still don't understand. You know, I had a conversation with somebody I grew up with who he doesn't understand his white privilege. And his defense was, I grew up in a normal family. I had a normal life. And like the fact that his baseline is attached to uh, meritocracy or financial privilege, yeah. there's not an understanding of the words. People don't even know how to spell the word without it being spelled. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I mean, and that's that's the point. Next point I was going to make is that people don't know how to differentiate between racial privilege and socioeconomic privilege. They're they're all privileges, but what when we're talking about white privilege, that is specifically racial. Yes, I know plenty of white people, and I, I said this in my blog that I wrote recently. That grew up poor, they didn't have a good education. They're probably still struggling now, but then they didn't have the added factor of race on top of that. Yeah, being and poor and white is a very is like be I've been poor and white, and that is a <laughs> privilege and, and I and I'm aware of that privilege mm -hmm. and that's something that like that is is uh enlightening and, and it right. gives you a new reflection of yourself which I think it's just shining the light but people are still moving your hands and I think that's mm -hmm. the challenge is allowing everyone to see the light and to understand it and then we can move forward with the more granular details kind of along picking back off of what you just said um I am married to a white man um I am a black woman with light skin. You know, people choose to either believe that I'm black or they choose to tell me that I'm something else based on what makes them feel more comfortable. Right. Um, but, you know, I have 10-year-old twins. My children look like my brother, which is basically white. Um, I watched my little brother, who's 10 years younger than me, go through his life with people throwing the N-word out. Um, him fitting into spaces with white people and them not knowing he's black and him pounding them <laughs> for saying things like that. I've been with my brother where people asked me and my mom, like, whose kid is this? Um, and so when I had my kids and they came out looking like they came out, I knew already what was going to be, you know, what things they needed to know and what was going to happen in our future here. And so here we are at 10. Um, you know, my kids have we've had extensive conversations about white privilege um we live in a mainly black neighborhood part of town 
And so just explaining even to 10 year olds and having them understand from the point, you know, basically from six on, they understood what white privilege was and they understood how they benefited from it. And they are constantly kind of going out of their way to make sure that they're, you know, following the lead of people who fit into the black box that they want to put us in. Um, because I've been so stringent with them about them understanding that like, look, you benefit from the fact that you have a white dad and you look like this. I benefit from the fact that I'm married to a white guy Uh who has credit and who has two parents that love him and will give us money when we're down and do things. You know, I benefit from the fact that he was able to buy a house because he was a white guy with good credit. We're able to do these things because of this. And, you know, even as hard as life is for me as a black woman, my, my privilege is like directly piggybacked off my husband at this point, you know, for me, the biggest thing is teaching our kids and the next generation of people what it actually means and that, you know, whether or not they benefit from it. Um, I don't know if we're ever going to actually resolve this right now for any of our, our lifetime, you know, but the fact that like, I feel like we need more people who are willing to just sit down with your kids and say, look, this is what you benefit from. Have the talk with your white kids too. You know, like black kids have the talk, but the white kids need to have the talk too. And I think until people are ready to have that conversation with even just their kids and correct that, we're really not going to get anywhere. We're going to continue to have this faux ally stuff, um, continue to have black people be the victims and brown people be the victims of everything here. And and I want to touch on your, the phrase that you use, faux allyship, because in the recent wake of the Black Lives Matter music uh, movement happening, you know, with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, we have seen a lot of allyship, but some of it has seemed faux to me. So I'm curious, do you think that, and this is for anybody, do you think that white people as a whole do actually care about racial injustice or does it feel like just a trend to kind of hop on in the moment? Chelsea kind of mentioned before, you said there was like a white girl like provoking the police and yelling at him to shoot at her and stuff. And it's like, I feel like she probably jet out of there as soon as they pull the guns or if, if not she had the option to and i feel like that's another like branch of privilege right like you can poke the yeah. bear and run she was all over the news though trust me she got photos okay collapsed, i mean so. but i guess like you know like you know like if you or melinda did that like it wouldn't be as easy of a run you know right <laughs> like, right um oh the photo so I, i'm in the youtube world as well as music um and not all i mean i, I there's a ton of great youtube friends and stuff i, I was telling melinda before this podcast i was like i have some tedious but i won't say specific names but like i remember specifically this conversation um i had with uh a a youtuber that's like a mid-size or whatever and they're all over social media like black lives matter equality for all and stuff like but i know what it's like to be at their house Mm. when the cameras aren't rolling and it's not that they burned across it from some in front of someone's house is they said like 300 really crappy things over the course of four years that I know that they're not behind, you know, because like there was one one time we were talking about, like I, I was collaborating with another friend, a person of color that's also trans. And uh, I was just like, oh, she's really great. Like it was fun working on that. And instead of being excited, this particular friend who's a white person uh, was like, man, I really wish some days that I was a black trans woman because it would be so much easier for me to like get things done and be popular and have a YouTube channel stuff. And I was like, <sighs> I, I, I wish that that was a satirical, like dark comedy thing, but he like, cause there was no cameras rolling. We were just in that conversation. I knew it was earnest. Like he, he felt um, oppressed himself because he's a white guy on YouTube and he feels like that's oversaturated. I'm like, well, that should tell you something too, though. If it's over, you know, like if there's too many, I don't know, like <laughs> that's a whole other thing. <laughs> right. But, but like that, 
it is frustrating. I have another friend that's getting ready to like end their YouTube career by exposing a bunch of this faux allyship. So good on them. Uh, hope, hopefully it works <laughs> because it's really tough because a lot of the, a lot of that faux allyship for everything has gotten some of these people to like massive like popularity because you know, a lot of these kids on the internet can't tell from the posts and stuff. It just right. looks great. Right. 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 And stuff is, it's, it's tough. And like, even in that case, it was a little bit easier to see because I was like right there all the time and the time they were close friends. But like, I feel like even in our communities, it's kind of hard to tell you know, how good, especially in LA, how good is somebody as an actor, you know? <laughs> right. I had somebody, I had a, a, a friend, a white man who's a close friend of mine talked to me the other day. You know, I was like, this person unfriended me on Facebook. That's weird, whatever. And he was like, well, secretly they're racist. This is somebody that I've been, I've been friends with both of them for years. Um, he has like a separate friendship with her because his wife is best friends with her. And he's like, no, really, she's very racist. This is why she moved to this neighborhood. We talk about, we, you know, we talk about it with her. We're trying to change her views, but like, she's very racist and I'm just kind of very sick of it. But this is a woman who's out here, like initially approached me saying that she wanted to set up a um, lunch money fund so that we could cover lunch money for like, you know, underprivileged kids who can't pay for their lunch money. So nobody is sitting here, you know, without lunch basically. Um, and so she's out here, you know, working for all of these organizations and saying that she wants to do all this work for these kids, but behind closed doors with her white friends, they're all aware that she's racist. Uh, and so he's like, you know, well, I don't know what to do. And I'm like, well, you know what to do. I'm basically, you're enabling her racism. You're sitting here letting her say these things. You're not shunning her. You're not checking her out. You're, you're like, you're not doing anything. And all you're going to do is continue to like allow for her to perpetuate this. She has two young white sons who are just going to grow up and be racist just like her. It's really frustrating. I'm sure, you know, being a person of color and never really being able to trust the white people in your life mm. because you know, like he said, when the lights and the cameras and everything's off and they're, you know, in their own pajamas and everything's comfortable, they're going to ultimately say some racist stuff. They're going to say something that's not okay. They're going to hold fast to those beliefs and they secretly still are holding on to this because it's so ingrained in them. I think that's definitely a situation with the Black community. There is like this fear and this distrust naturally that happens because you aren't aren't sure. I've definitely had those situations in my own life of people that I've grown up with. I mean, I grew up in Santa Barbara, which is a predominantly white neighborhood. Well, and this is why one of the core things that I've taught my kids, because they're extremely white passing, is while you're in these white spaces, you're going to hear these terrible things about people like mom and about the people that you love. And I said, when you hear these terrible things, you don't say anything to them. You get up and you punch them in the face and you tell them to shut up. <laughs> do not give them an inch. Do not let them think for a second that they are safe because black people, we are not monolithic. We all look different now. Yeah. And there are so many of us out here who really don't look black. You know, there are so many kids that look like mine who their mothers and fathers are black and people that they truly love in their lives are black. And you should not be okay to or safe, or you should not feel that it's okay for you to say that in any circumstance, period. Because it's mm-hmm. not me. You're right. not going to get away with it. Um, Denise, I want to ask you this. So when it comes to letting people of color, or even, you, I mean, for you even being a member of the LGBTQ community, but just letting people know that you are an ally, what are the best steps to do that? Because you want people to know like, hey, this is a safe space. I am a person you can talk to. I'm willing to help. But how do you let people know that authentically? I think, um, I think by 
by letting them guide the conversation, right? It has to come from them. They have to learn that they can trust me. And I have to be open and honest and say, I'm learning. There are times I'm going to screw up. I need you to tell me. And, and accepting that with grace, right? Which mm-hmm. is interesting because that's really hard to do. Right. But I know for me, people that have said they've been allies before who feel that they can speak for me, right? So straight people who, who say they're queer allies and then they feel that they can speak on my behalf. No, you can't do that. Um, you ask me, you know, you're using right. me. And I think also by example of using my privilege to help people attain the things that they can't, right? So understanding what that is. And as a pastor to help my congregation learn those things. Mm-hmm and learn how to so we're doing this vital conversations on racism and it's been really great I've had 16 people which is a lot for a summer class um, at church and they really are getting engaged but it has to go somewhere and, and one of the things I'm going to do as a follow-up is a com- is a conversation on how to ha- a class on com- on how to have a conversation with grace mm. how do you learn to sit in the room and be told that you're wrong and that what you've been taught is wrong and do it with grace and love because until you can do that none of the work you're going to do is going to be effective right because you're just going to get angry defensive and, and walk away from it and probably punched in the face by Chelsea's kid <laughs> I love that I love that so when you were having these conversations and Dakota, I'm going to throw this question to you. What sort of questions should white Americans be asking in order to understand this, in order to understand white privilege, in order to understand that racism is still an issue? I think what they should be asking is where do I go to listen? Where do I go to, to, to watch? Where do I go to read? Because, um, I, I have a personal, um, not aversion, but the word ally is not so savory to me. Uh, and and I don't have everything figured out, though I, I have unique experiences that growing up in a, in a mixed community and traveling the world and telling stories about Syrians and Kenyans and 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 people from Guam and and transgender and and working with a sense of um, empathetic storytelling, it breaks away all that stuff. So for me, uh, I don't want to be an ally. I'm I'm a, a foot soldier. I, I'm part. This is this is my issue too. This is my community. These are my children that are going to grow up in a world. You know, privilege sounds nice. On the, on the outset, but if you zoom out, white privilege is damaging me as a white man in my society, not as much, nearly as much as it is for people of, of color, but mm. there, I am unable to live in a fruitful, a completely full potential fruitful world because of the white privilege that dampens it. So mm-hmm. for me, um, I have a, a background and a long history of teaching yoga as well, and the word guru, which is thrown around in the self-help world, gurus are not self-proclaimed. You don't call yourself a guru. A student or follower or someone else, calls you their guru. And that's it. And I think that's the same thing with allyship. Saying you're an ally is the easiest way to do absolutely nothing. (laughs) And I think that's the problem. It leaves space to go home and cameras and lights go off and suddenly you're racist. It leaves space to do absolutely nothing. So for me, it's, it's read, watch, listen, uh, have a conversation and do something. You know, I, I feel, um, if you're active, then you're not called an ally. You're called whatever it is you're doing. I'm not an ally to the climate. I don't know why, 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 are there allies of the climate crisis? Are there allies of the economic crisis? Are there pandemic allies? No, these are people that are doing things that are activists or, or people that work with movements. So I do have a problem with that word because 
I am an allyship to someone else's experience that I mm. cannot have, but I am not an ally to the action because I can act as much as somebody else can. Uh, and I have the fortune of being in a, in a field and a type of work with organization and politics to have an understanding of where to read, where to look, where to listen. And so to, to your question, I really do think it's about absorbing information and getting to work and getting to work doesn't necessarily mean saying anything. And that's, right. that's the beauty of even, even, you know, uh, when I was in, in Los Angeles and, and, and marching, I was, it was so beautiful to be silent and, and to be there for how I was needed to, mm-hmm. to fill a role as a protester based upon the leadership communities that were there. And, and, and it's, I think that's a beautiful experience that people are unfamiliar with of how to stand beside someone without just saying ally, Instagram post, black square, let's right. go to the beach. So I know in order to kind of end quote unquote white privilege, we have to make everything kind of an equal playing field for people. But that obviously starts with ending racism. But what would you say to somebody that there's a fundamental disagreement of them just thinking that racism doesn't exist anymore because they throw out examples like, well, Obama was president or Oprah's one of the you know richest women in the world and things like that. And I'm sure you guys have all had those conversations because everybody has pretty much. But what do you say to those people when that's their argument? It's, like, it's almost like saying that, um, eating 10 bags of Skittles won't kill you because you had 10 bags of Skittles. I eat terribly and I'm fine. Well, over time, these things do create challenge. So I think people want to give these simple examples as a defense mechanism. You either defend racism or you understand it. Uh, there's really no in between. So I think the defense is the same way we make defenses. I use the food example, but people do do that for themselves. Yeah. Ah, it's just once. It's just this. It's just, no, you are eating 10 bags of Skittles. It does what it does to you. But if you do that the rest of your life, it might kill you, of course. Right. So right. there's this there's this concept of defending the thing that's bad in the short term. Well, Obama was president. We're saved or just listening. So I do feel like you either take one route or the other. And I don't feel that defensiveness or the problem with defensiveness is that it's easy to engage because it's volatile and it's exciting and it's emotional. And it's really easy to clash heads with somebody who you feel is vehemently wrong. As I agree that someone were to say, because Obama was president, there's no racism. It's ridiculous. But why do I have to fight to prove the truth as opposed to finding another way for them to understand? So for me, it's more about the understanding of racism less than offense against their defense. I would say in my experience, even dealing with my own husband, like it's not until he sees it in action that he really believed it. It wasn't until we went to the winter farmer's market and I tried to get a sample of bacon and the man straight up ignored me and my husband walked up and he gave him the bacon immediately, you know, and it, it's small things like that until they see it in action and they're like, you know, it's made aware and actually they physically see it. It's not really something that's fully believed ever. I mean, honestly, it's one of those things that you really have to see. And so I think it's, it's kind of, a lot of people are opening their eyes because again, they're seeing their friends say these things they're seeing how it's affecting people. The more we're recording, I mean, the invention of the cell phone and the camera on the cell phone and people who started recording, I mean, it's literally saving our lives at this point. Right. Um, not only saving our lives, but giving us a level of justice when our lives can't be saved um, that we never, ever got before. Um, Even just things like um, we watched, my husband and I watched Lovecraft Country the other day. And um, it's a new series by Jordan Peele on HBO. And it's during segregation. And it shows the dirtiest and the worst parts of what white people were doing back then. Um, It shows what happens in a sundown town when you're, you know, seven minutes to the border and the police are chasing you and trying to set you up so they can kill you. Um, 
until they actually see these things and in ways that are palatable for them to understand, um, it, it's like, it's not going to fully click. Ever. Right, right. And they don't ever understand that they still benefit from this. Just the fact that they know where their great, 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 great grandparents came from. And I know that my great, great grandfather was on a slave ship. And before that, I don't know who he was, um, which makes it really hard for us to just process our own existence, really. Like white privilege, what it really has done is damaged everything that black community has built and had built over time. It separated us, it really just fractured us completely. Right Talk now. about stories like the, you know, part of the white privilege is that um, there is a white history in America. You know, like when I was in college, there was always this uproar, like, why is there a black history month? Why don't we have white history month? I was like, I feel like the answer to that is obvious, but yeah. you know, like one of the, the components of that is like, Black people in America don't like they had their history like ripped away from them. Like the whole situation, you look at anything, it's like even just the baseline, just coming over on slave ships and stuff. Like that's just like forced. Like there's no like we escaped, uh, no offense, you know, <laughs> the, the British and then like, you know, came over here on our own and made our way and stuff. Like, it, it was just like, you know, like uh, they kidnapped us and brought us over here and now we're trying to do the best we can. And it's not even like that old of a history. I'm watching a show now that takes place in the 60s. And it's like, there's still segregation in the 60s. Yeah. You know? like that's, yeah. that's like within my parents' lifetime, well, you know? Yeah. <laughs> my my father was born in 1960 and my mother was born in 1964. So, you know, it's, yeah. it's my grandparents lived through this, you yeah. know? I, I feel like I didn't realize till maybe a year or so ago that it's such a privilege to truly know where you come from. Like even, even in doing like, you know, the ancestry.com and 23 means like you kind of know, but like we as a people will never actually get to fully know where our, where our history is from. And that, and that's so sad to me, but I think that little detail, people don't realize how much of a privilege it is to be able to trace your lineage. It's a huge privilege to know where you come from in that sense. Yeah. It's like, I have some white friends that, you know, they're like, they, they are able to spend like their holidays with like, like four, three or four generations of the yeah, family wow. and they take the photos and they're like, they're so proud. And then the same friend will talk to me and be like, I don't really get like what the BLM thing's about. It's like, you, you sent me the Christmas card, right? <laughs> like you, you literally, you literally send it to me. Like, I, I, I don't know, like, am I going to be like insulting if I point this out to you? You know, like... <laughs> So before we wrap up, um, Denise, I'm going to throw this question to you. What is, I know we talked about, you know, listening and, and educating and, and, you know, just finding ways to have conversations, but if you could just suggest one thing for people to do to really start understanding, what would it be? Listening to someone else's story. This is all about stories. When I'm, um, when I was, um, I'm a lot older than all of you, clearly from the, the dates you just all gave <laughs> When I was in my 30s, I went to South Africa and I visited Ellis Island where Mandela was incarcerated. And every single person that drove the ferry, that, that operated the ferry, that drove the buses that were tour guides, were people that had been incarcerated as political prisoners of apartheid during that time. It was the, one of the most powerful experiences of my life because I heard it from them. They yeah. told their stories. It changed everything for me an awful lot. And my goal is to set up a, a similar thing here in Los Angeles at one of the churches, which has a social justice museum, where I can have people sitting on stages telling their stories for the people that come in, because I think that's the way, you know, like you said, you've got to see it for yourself, you've got to hear it for yourself. So for me, it's that, it's engaging with people and not telling your story, because everybody knows white people's story, but being prepared to listen to other people. 
story, I think is one of the most powerful ways to meet here, here. I agree. Well, you guys, thank you so much for being a part of this conversation. I'm really, really appreciative. And I think all of your voices are very, very valuable. So thank you again for joining me. And to the listeners, make sure you subscribe to We Need to Talk on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. And we will talk to you again real soon. Bye.